evening, everybody. Welcome to another one of our primetime podcasts here at Calvary Baptist Church in Gaylord, Michigan. This is Memorial Day weekend. Those of you who may be listening to it at some point in the future, it is the year 2021. And so this is one of the podcasts that in the current series we're in of largely frequently asked questions that people might have, this is one that is not especially time-bound. Many of the things that I talk about in this last couple weeks and in the weeks through the summer are going to be things that are relevant to the period that we're in right now as we are coming out of the pandemic and a lot of social change in our nation and all of those sorts of things. But this is one that is an old, old question. And, well, the answer is simple. There's always some nuances of it, including trying to wrap our brains around it. Today we're going to address this issue that essentially asks this question, what happens to those who have never heard of Christ? Who have never heard of Jesus, have never heard the message of the gospel? What about them? And so we're going to try to at least cover the basics of that in the next 29 minutes. I hope that you will be patient as I try to wander through this and do so in a way that will make some sense. All right. Well, what happens to those who have never heard of the gospel? Let's, uh, let's consider a story here, okay? This is a fictitious story. There's a man who's on an island, and perhaps you've run across this fictitious man on an island when you were dealing with a friend's argument against Christianity, and this man is this on this, this island, and he's been stranded there all of his life. And you've wondered, how would a good and loving God condemn someone to hell who's never even heard of him? This man on this island who is all alone. How would a good and loving God condemn such a person? When it comes to this issue, those who are professing Christians have looked at it one of two ways. They fall into one of two broad categories. And so we're going to look at these two broad categories. Two fancy words, one inclusivism and the other one exclusivism. You might say, there you go again, as Ronald Reagan said of Jimmy Carter. (laughs) But both of these views actually maintain Jesus is the only way to God, but only one of them insists that our faith in him has to be conscious. Now, I'm not going to advocate both of these as much as I'm going to explain them to you, and then at the end I'll tell you where I I think we should stand on this matter. So let's talk first about the one called inclusivism. To be inclusive basically means that everything's included. It's a belief that salvation is only through Christ, but that there could be people who are saved and don't know that they're saved. That's the belief of inclusivism. They're redeemed by the person and the work of Christ, even though they don't consciously embrace him. Simply put, um, Jesus saves some who have never heard of him. And you might say, well, where in the Bible would they come up with such a statement? Well, they'll take a look at Romans 2. Every one of you who judges in passing judgments on another you condemn yourself, etc., etc. 
We know the judgment of God falls rightly on those who practice things. And it, Romans 2, verse 1 to 16 goes through and fairly extensively speaks of this. And some have interpreted it to mean that salvation is possible apart from God's revelation of himself. That general revelation, which Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20 speaks of. That's the passage where it says, among other things, God's existence is made plain to us even in creation. His eternal power and his divine nature are clear to us. We are without excuse. And moral law, Romans 2, verse 14 to 15, it talks about Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. That just simply hardwired into us originally is a knowledge that God exists and he says who he is. That's part of this belief of inclusivism. A man named Millard Erickson once explained it. He said, the rise of these more inclusive views of salvation, even among conservative evangelicals, is based on a belief that general revelation is a sufficient calling to all people. It isn't universalism, but it leans towards universalism. Remember, universalism is one that basically says, at the end, all people are saved, that God rejects our rejection of his only son, even if for a period of time you have to spend some time basically in hell. It's a variation of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Now, obviously, we don't support that view, but this is about trying to have us understand how some people have tried to cope with this issue of what about those who have never heard of the gospel. Another way that uh, this is looked at, and this is back to that gentleman, uh, Mr. Erickson, Millard Erickson, he wrote the following statement. Here's what he said. What if someone were to throw himself upon the mercy of God, not knowing what basis that mercy has provided? Would not such a person, in a sense, be in the same situation as the Old Testament believers? The doctrine of Christ and his atoning work had not been fully revealed to those people, yet there was provision for the forgiveness of their sins that they could not be accepted on the merits of any works of their own. They had the form of the gospel without its full content, and they were saved. So he's using the Old Testament argument. I think that what he may be overlooking is that, yes, they were saved by faith through God's grace, but they also knew of a coming Messiah. Remember, they were saved as they looked ahead to that Messiah. We are saved as we look back to who that Messiah was, Jesus Christ, the Son of God that was prophesied to come. The problem, of course, is that this trivializes Christ's saving work. If people could have been saved without him having gone to the cross, doesn't that trivialize what he did on the cross? Well, people can kind of back themselves into a little bit of a bottomless pit on this issue. But the person who holds that inclusivism view says that what matters to God is human faith, human faith responding to the light that he has provided at a given place or time. They would say it is unwarranted then for anyone to claim to know the fate of those who have yet to profess Christ. They haven't rejected anything because they haven't heard something and said no to it. 
That's, they would argue that's a different situation than somebody who has lived in, most likely here in Western society, in Europe or America or any of the Americas, South America too, over the last 500 years have heard of Christ, have heard of the gospel, and have said no to it. They've said they're in a different category. They clearly stand condemned. But what about those who have never heard? Many of the people who are inclusivists appeal to God's character. They say because God is love, the argument goes he'd never condemn someone that didn't even have a chance to be saved. And their scriptural basis for this would be 1 John 4, 8. Speaking of how anybody who does not love does not know God because God is love, basically is what it says. And so they're doing a certain amount of cherry picking because they're trying to fill some unanswered questions and they're wrestling with the idea that because God is all-loving and because God is good and because God is just, certainly people stand condemned who have rejected him. But what about those who haven't rejected him? Now, the people who hold to this inclusive view, generally speaking, are people who lean heavily towards what's called the Arminian or the Wesleyan side of the spectrum. Our Methodist friends and our friends who come from the Pentecostal traditions, and actually, in many ways, those who come from the Roman Catholic traditions or the Episcopalian traditions. Their view is essentially love wins and that God rejects our rejection. Uh, the more liberal branches of Christianity um, believe in universalism. I mean, they, they do look for salvation, but their belief is basically that God's going to grant it even to those who have rejected him. Now, obviously, we don't accept that view. But it's important to see that those who are looking for a way to, to show that God would not unfairly condemn somebody are also willing to, to some degree, cherry-pick Scripture in order to find different passages to say, look, you maybe that's what that meant. Maybe that was the application of that. In most cases, it's very well intended. The people who lean towards the inclusivist views tend to be people who are, um, oh, they're, they're what I, I used to refer to as a classic bleeding heart. <laughs> and sometimes we say that term with a little bit of disdain, and I, I don't think that we should, quite honestly. Bleeding heart liberalism in a Christian worldview has its place because it's, it helps to balance out others who just become very hard-hearted and certainly shouldn't. I would always say there ought to be one sincere Christian bleeding heart liberal at every table of discussion just to remember and to remind us that we too are sinners who are without hope. That being said, I don't support the inclusivist view I think there are things that we can't explain and we don't totally understand, but the inclusivist view is trying to essentially do the following. There are things that God hasn't specifically stated in Scripture, and so we're going to somewhat mold God into our view of what it is that we think he should do. Romans 1.20 is the classic statement that usually is referred to by the people who hold the other view, exclusivism. Exclusivism. Redemption is possible only through Jesus Christ and that this is a, a conscious faith. 
that somebody cannot be saved and not know it. Someone can think they're saved and not be saved, but they cannot be saved and not know it. And this view has been the majority view, a substantial majority view, throughout church history. It remains the vast majority view amongst conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians. And there are certain Bible texts that are usually the defense of this view. The, those who detract from this view say, that makes God unfair. And I think we have to look at that because first thing we have to recognize is who are we to say whether God is fair or not? And remember that famous, kind of infamous video clip a few weeks ago of R.C. Sproul in which he reminded his students, you want justice? Is that what you want? Okay, here's justice. So be careful when we start calling God unfair. I don't think God is unfair. Grace is through him and him alone and through his love. He had every right to not extend it, but he chose to extend it. So let's look at this issue of exclusivism because some of this debate, inclusive or exclusive, comes from the debate about do we stand condemned to begin with as our default position or are we born kind of on the fence and then God sort of watches and sees what choice we make. In other words, do we choose God or does God choose us? And obviously we're not going to solve that one tonight. You and I are never going to solve that one. We know that both factors are at work, but you've heard me emphasize many times that I do think that many Baptists, quite honestly, have too high of a view of our own free will and too low of a view of God's sovereign will. That being said, let's take a look at these verses that would support the exclusivist view. Romans 1, uh, verse 18 to 23, highlights the importance of general revelation, that we are without excuse, that um, the man on the island at the beginning of this, this podcast that I spoke of, the fictitious man on the island, knows God, but sin suppresses that truth in him, and therefore he is without excuse. In other words, it's not because of the absence of faith that we're condemned, but because of the presence of something, the presence of rebellion, the presence of sin. We are born with a sin nature. Now people say, well, what about little children? Or what about babies? Well, that's a future podcast here. Our way of dealing with that is the doctrine of the age of accountability. So I'm going to say that is a separate discussion, and we'll have that discussion soon. We're talking about adults here, able-minded adults, okay? Here's a question, variation of this. Will God condemn the, the innocent tribesman who's never heard as Christ? He lives in a remote region of um, the backlands of Australia, let's say raised in a tribal pagan culture, has never heard of Jesus Christ. Will God condemn him? I mean, after all, isn't he innocent? The exclusive view says he isn't innocent. He's born with a sin nature, a fallen nature. Moreover, we also have an inescapable pull toward enacting our faith or our lack of faith. 
Uh, let's go back to the man on the island, that fictitious man on the island. In the imagination of the exclusivist, he just kind of cries out for a vague mercy and forgiveness of something, not knowing what it is. We would say, as people who believe salvation is through Christ only and through consciously faith in Christ only, that what he's really doing is participating in some form of, of, a, of an earthly variation of a religion that may even resemble Old Testament views of people, you know, who were wandering in the wilderness for all those years. God had revealed himself to them in so many ways. So it's not a fair comparison to say the Old Testament. There are many people today who have a faith in what is basically a form of deism. They believe there is a creator, some sort of higher being. They're not entirely sure what that is or what that means and what it looks like. They believe it is good. They believe it is loving. But they aren't sure that it's all-powerful, and they're not sure that it is the God described in Scripture. There are a lot of people who hold to that view, and, and they pat themselves on the back for how intellectual they are. Now, you know that I have said one of the problems that Baptists have is that we've shunned any form of intellectual thinking. In doing so, we actually have denied that God gave us a mind and we're supposed to use it. And when we come to faith, we come as faith as little children, but who says we're ever supposed to stay there in the faith? So you definitely know that I am not anti-intellectual. That being said, we can't intellectualize ourselves away from what Scripture pretty clearly says. There are no innocent tribesmen. The man on the island is not innocent. He's born with a sin nature, and he will sin unless something from the outside works upon him, and then he responds to that call. Romans 10. The necessity of the of gospel faith is on display in Romans 10. I'm going to paraphrase it a bit. It says, everybody who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We, we know that one, but how are they going to call on him in whom they haven't believed? And how will they believe in him if they haven't heard? And how will they re refer to it if there isn't a preacher? There's a passage I quoted in a, a message a, a week or two ago on uh, the Great Commission and the importance of evangelism, missions, whether they be in faraway lands or whether they be missions right here in our own backyard. The logic of Paul's claim is pretty straightforward here. The Apostle Paul, he's saying, the only way to be saved is to call on the name of Christ and believe. The only way to call on his name is to believe the gospel. The only way to believe the gospel is to hear the gospel, and the only way to hear the gospel is to be told and taught the gospel. The reality of another means of salvation besides faith in Christ is difficult to square with that passage. Okay? In other words, the exclusivist here, excuse me, the inclusivist, let's get that one right, does not deny that faith in Christ is the only way. What they're doing is trying to suggest that people can believe in Christ not knowing his name and not knowing what he is. Um, you know, I think that's a bridge too far. I don't think that uh, we should even walk out on the approach to that one. John 14. We have to do justice to Jesus' own declaration. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The inclusivist view sometimes objects to this statement. They say that 
he's speaking in an implied way, but it seems very straightforward and emphatic to me. Do you see what I'm saying about how they have to try to twist Scripture and interpret it through another lens in order to get at what they want it to say? Paul is so straightforward on this, but in that case, John. John 14 is very straightforward on it. What about in Acts 4? There's no salvation through any other name under which men must be saved. Okay, it, it doesn't say that there's no other Savior under heaven, something which exclusivists would agree to. But it specifically says, specifically, there is no other name. That's a strong indication of recognizing the Savior's name, his identity as being necessary, that our faith is a conscious faith in a specific Jesus, a specific understanding of who he is. That one's a pretty strong argument against that effort of an inclusivist view. And finally, supporting the exclusivist view is Acts 10. God hears the prayers of a devout Gentile named Cornelius, and he instructs him to send for a man who was named Peter. Arriving the next day at Peter's house, Cornelius's men basically say, here's a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, and he's directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter then journeys with the men to Cornelius's house, where the centurion addresses his guest. And there, this is in Acts 11:14. He's basically saying, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. Uh, what's interesting is that Cornelius isn't expecting a random message. He's expecting specifically because an angel had told him that this is going to be a message that you will be saved, and, and it even speaks to all of your household. In other words, it was a message without which Cornelius would have remained, despite all of his sincerity, he would have remained lost. So really where I'm trying to go with this is that there are two points. First, because if a genuine unreached seeker someone who's really seeking and was still unreached. If there is such a person, why wouldn't we expect God to send someone to him to reveal the gospel message to him or her, whether a missionary or even a dream or even an angel appearing to them? Secondly, and this is more significant, if ever there was a candidate for salvation through just general revelation, it would have been this guy Cornelius. He was devout, he feared God in the broad sense, at least as much as the light that he'd received would have said to him. But as the chapter unfolds, it's very clear that even great religious sincerity is not enough. It was necessary for Peter to leave his home and travel some 30 miles, as near as we can tell, to deliver a message without which Scripture suggests even the most spiritually responsive person in the world could not be saved. So what happens to those who never hear the gospel? It's not really a, a vague question. It's not kind of a hypothetical question. It's very relevant. Our view of missions, for example, in terms of its nature and its urgency is going to be shaped by our view of the so-called man on the island. You might wonder, isn't the exclusivist view unfair? Well, sometimes people will look at that and they'll say, yeah, I struggle with that one. That's, 
that's not fair, but listen, we've got to recognize something. Who are we to say to God, that's not fair? We can and we often do say to God, I don't understand, Lord. Why? Why would you have allowed that? The thing is, is that none of us know any man on an island or woman on an island. We do know people who, so far as we can tell, are not yet saved. And by the fact that they, maybe they grew up next door to a church building and they grew up on Sunday morning hearing the sound of the music and maybe even hearing the sound of the pastor's messages and things like that. They have heard, but they have still not accepted and believed. And generally speaking, we would say that person is still not yet saved. But when it comes to people who have never heard, let's go back to Romans 1.20. It says, we are without excuse. God's existence and his even nature is clear in the very existence of creation. That we have to learn to reject that. That's what sin does to us. It makes us deny that that is true. Very often, children, little children, and this is another basis for the doctrine of the age of accountability, that babies are saved if they were to die. That there seems to be built into us a natural desire to, uh, to believe. Now, children don't know exactly what they believe, but if we tell them something, they tend to just accept it. As we get older and older, we tend to not do so. In other words, the longer that we're alive, the more that sin blocks our ability and our willingness to see. This is a difficult doctrine, but it should give us all the more reason and all the more motivation to not accept views that perhaps God will accept people through some other means. Um, no, I don't see scripture saying that, and it is also inconsistent with not only God's own word, but it's inconsistent with God's own nature. Remember, God takes sin so seriously, he couldn't just wink, and he couldn't just say, okay, I'm just, I'm going to pretend that didn't happen. You say to me, well, Jim, when he looks at us one day in eternity, he's going to look at us and say, I don't see any sin. I only see the perfections of my son. That is true, but what lengths did he have to go to in order for that to take place? God sent his only begotten son, who indeed was God himself, wrapped in human flesh, to die a horrible, terribly unfair death. I mean, if you want to see something that's not fair, on our own statement of justice, that's not fair. But it was necessary because it was the only way. God takes sin very seriously. My sin, your sin, and the sin of the man on the island. What happens to those who have never heard? Those who have never heard, unless somebody has told them, or in some miracle situation, or God speaks to them in a dream, or an angel comes to them, there aren't very many of those moments. Those who have never heard have never believed, and those who have never believed stand condemned because they are like you and I were, sinners without hope, until something outside moved on us 
and changed our hearts. This seems like a hard doctrine, but I believe it is a biblical doctrine, and it should give us all the more motivation to say those who are without Christ are without hope. Reach out to them and support missions, but don't forget the mission field that you're engaged in is the one right here in our own backyard. I hope this is helpful. It's a little bit of a rambling message, but I hope you can understand what I'm trying to say. It should give us all the more motivation to reach out, particularly here in our own community, which is the area where this local church is is uh, at its weakest in terms of ministry. We have a couple of events a year like VBS and a few other things, but we really need to be focusing much more on this, to be outwardly focused church, not aimed at the preferences of the members and the needs of the members. I mean, certainly we need to take care of each other, but That can't be the purpose of the church. I hope you can hear what I'm saying, and I hope you can stretch yourself. I hope you wrestle with this the way that I do, and pray about it, and ask God to show you where and in whom you can make a difference right here in Gaylord, Michigan. Thank you for listening. Have a great week, everybody. God bless you.